Welcome to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. This podcast is where we explore the landscape of the immensity of landmines that exist for people who've lost their sense of identity, who've been shaken to the core, and are relearning who they are now that a part of them is lost. It's stories of how people manage this struggle, regain their footing, and the gifts they've discovered along the way. Thanks for tuning in. All right. Hi, Marie. Hi, Julie. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's my pleasure to be here. Good. Thank you. And today we have Marie Hanneman, and she has a few identity loss and reinventing stories. And we're going to see how many we get through in this short hour. And the first one is, well, let's see. So there's, there's a mental breakdown. So there's right. talk about mental illness and how that impacts your identity. Then there's a job loss. Which was a of, result of the mental illness. Right. Yeah. And because when you have severe mental illness, then it's sort of hard to function in society. And then you have, then you have the divorce, might as well tack that one on too. Yeah. And disruption and, you know, all the child custody type stuff. And then you have a recovery story. Yes. So let's go for it. Just okay. jump in where you'd like to start. Well, I think it's important for the audience to have an idea of who I was and how I got to the date of March 3rd. 2010, which was my breakdown date. Mm -hmm. It was that specific. So uh, let me, and I was 38 years old. So let me give you an idea of what those 38 years looked like. I'm the youngest of seven kids. I was raised in um, a very loving home, but very um, strict Catholic also. There, I went through 12 years of Catholic school. I loved my life. I married my high school sweetheart. I was completely in love with him. We had two kids. There were difficult moments in our marriage and um, difficult things, but I didn't realize how much stress I was putting on myself. I worked and raised my kids. He, my ex-husband um, worked out of town during the week. Mm-hmm. So not only was I working and raising the kids, but I was also pretty much in charge of everything as day to day. Kind of being a single mom most of the time. Yeah, I mean, right. Not financially, yes. but in the day to day. In the day to day ins and outs. It was very much like that. Um, and we made a very big move. We had lived in Marietta, California, which is Southern California. Um, on a property that we own there and raised our kids there for the most part until let's see, I was 2008 is when we moved. So I would have been 36 when we moved to Bakersfield, California for my husband's job. Oh, I have cousins in Bakersfield. Oh yeah. In moving to Bakersfield, there was an agreement between my husband and I, at least I thought there was an agreement between my husband and I, let me put it that way. I only know my side of it. And in my mind, there was an agreement that he would be home every night and that we were doing this to create healthier family interactions. You were Um, making the move so that there wouldn't be that time away from home. Exactly. Okay. He got offered a job that where he was supposedly going to be home every night and it was going to be a different way of living for us. 
Um, my kids were preteen and teen at the time. And it was kind of like, okay, if we don't do it now, we're probably never going to have the opportunity to provide that for our children. I'm willing to make the move. So we made the move. And I had just graduated when I was 36 uh, from college. I did a I did a four-year program in 16 months online. So that gets me you, stressed out even hearing that. Right. So if that gives you any idea of how I how driven I was and how I would make things happen. Um, my, my big joke is I couldn't move mountains and that includes ones that nobody wanted moved in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) So I felt very capable and very powerful. Um, sometimes a little bull in a China cabinet kind of thing, you know, but that was my demeanor and that was who I was at the time. And that's how I got through life. I got a job as a corporate account, corporate staff accountant at a wholesale fuel company in Bakersfield. And three months after I got that job, my boss, who was the CFO of the whole company, Hmm. went on maternity leave and left me in charge of providing financials to the president. So that was very stressful. There also was a underlying rumor, but certainly felt real that the president and the CFO had been having an affair and that the CFO warped numbers to his liking in the financials. Mm. So I kind of stepped into a big pile of doo-doo with this job. Not fun at at all. Yeah, it was so stressful. And I, I was a very integral person. I was like, I am not signing my name to something that's not real. I'm just not doing it. Like it was such an affront to who I was that someone was even hinting at me doing that. I was stressed out enough even producing the financials. This was a fairly large company. I had done most of my work uh, for a smaller company, you know, smaller companies along the way. Can I just jump in real quick. So I've learned this term recently. This is called a moral injury. You sustain a moral injury. And actually, a lot of physicians are sustaining moral injuries. And it's part of why the suicide rate is steadily going up at alarming rates. Wow. Just being asked to do something that's against your ethics, either witnessing it or doing it yourself. And and so that's, that's what you were you were placed in a position to do something that wasn't right and you knew it and you didn't agree with it because there's a lot of people who will do it and it's like oh well whatever yes but I just it was almost like it almost was physically painful for me to even consider it that's just how I was you know it's very serious about that kind of stuff and and that that is exactly why it's a moral injury because this this was this was actually injuring you that's it was it was physically painful I can remember it and at the same exact time that that was happening my ex-husband was not fulfilling on the agreement that we made and he 
I think he was so used to being out and about during the week that he did not take it seriously to come home. So I was working really long hours. Nothing in my mind had improved much in with the move. So there we took this big giant leap and my marriage was not improving. In fact, it was deteriorating in a lot of ways. And my professional career was very painful. Now, that little kid that was me when I was younger loved math, have always loved math. I could do math in my head. I could help my daughter with her calculus homework. I won awards for being able to do calculations in my head all the time as a kid. Math was my one absolute in life. It's a superpower. Yeah, there was no gray area in math. And I loved that. I loved it and I thrived off of it and I loved numbers. And so even math by being asked to skew numbers was not even clear in my life. I felt like everything was in chaos. That's how it felt inside of me. Well, it sounds and, like it was. And your husband was out doing what instead of coming home? Uh socializing and partying he he was doing what he's done forever i mean we had been married uh gosh 17 18 years at that point so quite some time and we'd always kind of uh agreed on our independent time and that sort of thing but he definitely i think in my perception of our marriage definitely took it too far and um, didn't respect the agreement that I thought that we had made. So I was just a mess and nothing felt okay. Nowhere felt what, safe. What does a mess look like and not feeling um, safe? I had, I didn't know of anything in my life that was solid. I was I'm starting to have a, Yes, there was no certainty anywhere I looked. And I didn't feel like I fit at the office because they were asking me to do things I didn't want to do. I didn't feel like I fit at home because my husband was disrespecting what I thought we had agreed upon and me and my kids were becoming older teenagers. So that's challenging. <laughs> and everything felt chaotic. If and I remember correctly, March 3rd is a Wednesday in the week and Monday and Tuesday, I had my own office, but my door was always open. I mean, people were right there, but I cried literally just not sobbing, but just tears never stopped running down my face for two full days. And you'd been on that, that job was. for how long? I had been on that job for almost five months. At that okay. point. So you were new, but you definitely knew what was going on. You were. Yes. And, and it was really becoming unbearable. Yes. Yes. And on March 3rd, which was a Wednesday, I, I have um, an issue with my thyroid. So I, I had a doctor's appointment to go in and have my blood drawn. So I, you know, they knew I was going to be late at work by like an hour and I went to my doctor's appointment and from the moment I got inside the room to be examined I began sobbing 
like my whole body was sobbing and I couldn't stop. I couldn't say words. And the doctor said, we're not letting you out of here. I'm calling your husband. I drove to the doctor's appointment. We left my car there. My husband took me home. She gave me a prescription. And I have not gone back to a regular job since that day, March 3rd, 2010. She gave you um, an anti-anxiety prescription or something? Yes. And it, it was Wellbutrin, I believe she gave me that day. And the number for a psychiatrist. I already had a therapist that was working with me and with my husband and I. So we immediately, or my husband, he's really good in a, in a crisis. Let me just tell you, he, he handles and he's, he's really good. He took care of me very well. And I literally from that day regressed to childhood completely. Um, I don't know how to explain this. I, I even talked like a child. I, I, I couldn't have, I couldn't even do two plus two. All my math skills were lost in a day like that. I, every bit of my identity, the person who handled it all was gone. I was this little kid and I could only handle so much pressure. All I wanted to do was play or I was in a dark room laying down one or the other. It was like I had split almost. That's how it felt. Like I had like the part of me that was adult had to go hide because life was too much. And, and the kid would come out occasionally when, when it was safe. And when it wasn't, I'd run back to my room. I have telling you this right now. I, <laughs> I haven't told this story in a long time. And I feel for that little girl that was broken down that day so much. I literally, I mean, it was like life stopped. I mean, nothing that I could do or did prior to that day could I do now. It was a very strange, and I was like watching myself. It was like an out-of-body experience almost. Yeah. And go ahead. Dissociation? Very much so, disassociation. Yes. Yes. And then... I met my psychiatrist. Wait, wait, before you go there, yeah. let's, let's, and, and of course, this is difficult, but if you'd like to explain a little bit more who that little girl was, what she was afraid of, how she was feeling, and how, she and very... how she thought about the situation, because did she still have the adult brain that knew that you were an adult? And you should be able to do things? No, I knew I was an adult. I knew that my kids were my kids. My husband was my husband. I knew about my life. But there was no ability left inside me to show up as the woman. None. At all. And you recognize that also? Yes, I did which could be extremely frustrating and shame feeling. It, and yes, it was almost embarrassing 
like, but it, but it, it was so hopeless. Like there was no possibility of me handling it like an adult. There was really no possibility of that. So it was like, well, this is all I can do. This is all I have really is kind of how it felt. This is all I have. All I have is, um, I'd like a chocolate shake. And like, they'd be so excited because I actually ate. Well, so you, you know, didn't want to um, eat either. I didn't want to eat. I didn't like loud noises. I didn't like light a whole lot unless I was playing a game. My ex-husband called my mom and dad and told them what had happened and asked them to please come up and stay with me because he wasn't sure of my state of mind. Uh, my parents came and stayed for a full week. And I say babysat me because it really was like they were babysitting me. And they got my kids to school because I, I was afraid to even try and drive. Mm -hmm. I wasn't even sure if I could pay attention. Let me just, it, let me just point out that to me losing control of our mind is the absolute worst thing that can happen to a person because even if you get like a life-threatening diagnosis you can still make choices you can still rationalize and you you have that degree of control but like with alzheimer's or some of these really severe mental health crises like like what you're explaining or like psychosis or some like super that, that just, it, it impacts your cognition. And the, it's the very thing you would use to address whatever ails you is what's not, not working. working. Yeah. And that's why I say that it's like the absolute worst thing is when you lose capacity of your, your thinking. Yes, because you don't, you don't even, I didn't even have an ability to make a decision, much less one that was healthy for me. Right. So really my ex-husband and my parents, my husband at the time and my parents had to collaborate on this and, and do their best to go through this maze of, of mental health for me. Because, I mean, they could ask me questions about how I felt or what I thought I could do or not do, but I had no ability to make rational decisions at that time, like an adult woman. That was just not possible at that moment. Mm -hmm. And um, inaccessible. Yes. Yeah. And I'll tell you something. Let me give you a little history to my family. I, my oldest sister has schizophrenia. She was 19 when that happened, when she had her breakdown and she's had it ever since. And I was five. Okay. So I don't really know her prior to her mental illness. And she went through a really tough time because it was in the seventies, you know, when, when she had her breakdown. So there was a lot of trial and error with medications and not really safe places for people with mental health issues to go. There was just so much that it's actually, played into that. it's actually still that way, but anyway. oh, it is except for my sister has found an amazing foundation where she lives, but, but it is, it's just, 
I watched her struggle so hard. Also, my grandmother had a mental illness of some sort. Now this is, see, my dad was a teenager. So it would have been in the forties when this happened, but my grandmother's husband, so my grandfather and her mother made a decision for her to have a frontal lobotomy. Mm. So, so you have all this in my subconscious, right? You know, it's, it's in here somewhere that these not so great things have happened to people in my life that I know. And now I'm struggling. It was very scary. Yeah, I can't even begin to imagine. It's, you know, it's hard enough to watch something like that from the outside, but to be it happening to you and knowing, you know, your sister and your, was it your grandmother? Yes. Then, and then you're like, now what's going to happen to me, right? Right. And, yes. and, you, and you'd have no power. You have no sovereignty at that point. Correct. And you're totally dependent on your caretaker, your husband, your parents, and then the mental health. I'm not going to even call it a system because it's not a system. Mental health services that I would imagine weren't as comprehensive as you would have needed. Am, am I, is that a good guess? I will say I had an amazing, amazing therapist. She was amazing. And I say was, cause she has since passed on. She was in her seventies when I was seeing her mm. and she was amazing. Now my psychiatrist left everything to be desired. I, I don't even know how to explain. He had no personality. He, he didn't, really seem to care about me in any way, shape or form. It was like, okay, you want another script here? It was, it was very, I was very poorly handled in that, in that office, I would say for sure. Although luckily I am a person who voices my opinion when I can. So I was going to say, so then I met my psychiatrist uh, shortly after this incident my husband made an appointment and took me in and the first medicine he gave me, I can't remember what it's called. Ativan. That's what it's called. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not here to endorse any medications or, or slam any medications. I'm just sharing my experience. Mm-hmm. So I, the first day my husband left for work after my parents were gone, I had this Ativan for the first time. Oh no. I was laying on the bed when he left. And when he came home eight hours later, I was in the exact same position. I had not moved. I had not slept. I had not eaten. I had not drank water. I had not gone to the bathroom. I literally just laid there comatose. Mm. And my ex-husband noticed immediately. Like I said, he's very good in a crisis. And he's like, we're fixing this tomorrow. And the first thing in the morning, he took me to the psychiatrist's office and like basically like carried me in and said, you need to fix this. This is not working. (laughs) So luckily he was a a really good advocate for me and he paid attention to that. Um, I will be forever grateful for that. And to my parents who came up often after that. 
came up often and helped. It got to the, I was so much a child that literally from March 3rd, for quite some time, my husband and I did not have sex because I, he felt like he was, like he thought he was dealing with a child. He goes, I feel like I'm dealing with a child. We can, that doesn't seem right to me. And I agreed. And um, I actually took my own room in the house because I felt like I needed to be able to just close the doors and hide sometimes. Mm-hmm. So luckily he, my son was very gracious. He was not thrilled, Wait. but he was very gracious and gave me his room. Wait, that that's really honorable. So what what's going on right now with the the emotion that you're having telling this what what is this bringing up when it's happening you're so much in survival and just trying to figure out how to even breathe that you don't realize the difficulty for others around you and Telling the story now makes me think of my kids, my ex-husband and my parents, and how scared they all must have been, too. Mm-hmm. I haven't revisited this since I've had adult children and since my husband and I have been divorced for a while. And my parents are now older and requiring the care of me and my siblings. So it's interesting to feel it and see it through their eyes a little bit. And and also, I don't think I allowed myself to really fully grieve what I lost in that breakdown because I was so focused on surviving and, and getting better that, you know, you don't have, I didn't take the luxury of, allowing it to sink in I felt like if I allowed it to all sink in at the time that I I I would have lost the window to get better I was really afraid of getting lost in that Um, of of like spiraling down into depression on top of everything else yes and maybe possibly never becoming an adult woman in my mind again That would be that was very scary, terrifying. Yeah, very. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for taking that moment to ask that question, so I could breathe. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Let's both take a big breath because this is this is some <laughs> seriously painful. You know, even if it like it's in the past or part of it's maybe still happening, but just, you know, looking back at the past with the retrospective lens of then seeing how it impacted the other people and how difficult it was for everybody. Yeah, it was strange all the way around. It was just it blindsided all of us. And once it occurred, there there was no, oh, hey, wait a minute, let's get prepared. Oh, hey, wait a minute. 
you know, that, that was it. It was like, no, it's done. And my mom said to me, after a little while, she said, well, you know, Marie, maybe your, maybe your soul knows that math is not your destiny. Maybe you did that job because it was, because you were good at it, which is great. But were you happy to be doing that job? And I said, it was okay. But if anybody knows me now, and, and then they hear that I was at one point a corporate staff accountant, they're like, no, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> they're like, there's no way you did that. And I'm like, I did because it's just not my personality. It's not who I am. And um, I was good at it. And, and that was great. And it fed my family, but I think I had run on empty for too long. Now, this is fascinating. You have, you love math. You're, it's your superpower. Yeah. And yet it isn't actually somehow your purpose. It's, is what I'm hearing. Yes. Definitely. It did not feed me in any way. And this was like, you know, maybe it was the, the moral injury that pushed you over the edge, but even, I know we can't undo. Right. Like even before then, do you think that math wasn't really? I always felt like, like I was going to own a business or I was going to do something where I got to create experiences or, or do something. I I was going to be the financial end of a business that did something for people. That's what I thought I would do. Mm -hmm. And when, when we get around to what's going on now, you're going to see everything I ever did led me to now everything including my math skills and my accounting. Wow. Yeah. And uh, let me tell you, because of how much perseverance and put your nose to the grindstone and make it happen, I have inside of me, without this complete upset and without the inability to continue on the path I was on, I would not have changed paths. So, yeah, I, I know how that is. I, I had to break to break away from what wasn't working. Yeah. And let me tell you my diagnosis too. I mean, just so people have an idea, I, I have schizoaffective disorder, which is schizophrenia with a mood disorder. And my mood disorder is actually anxiety and depression. And I also am bipolar. I have highs and lows as well. So I went from being someone who never had hallucinations or auditory hallucinations and someone who had a lot of energy. I could go up and down, but yes, to, (laughs) to really, my brain was a little uh, more than just a bit off kilter. There was a lot to get back into sync. 
And I am, because I watched my sister fight the doctors her whole life, I was determined to work with my doctors, to cooperate with them for my best outcome, because I watched her cut off her nose to spite her face by refusing to communicate with doctors and not wanting anything to do with them and that sort of thing. And um, and I didn't want to make that same mistake. And I am eternally grateful to my sister for going first because had she not gone first, I wouldn't probably not have been as, um, it would have been more resistant and and things flowed easier for me with my mental illness because because I had her lessons to learn mm -hmm. without having to physically go through them myself. Now, isn't part of severe mental illness lack of awareness that you even have a problem? It, it sounds um, like you were aware that you had a, a problem. I knew what all the things... I knew I wasn't right in my mind. I knew that because I had lived 38 years right in my mind. Some people may question that, but pretty much I lived 38 <laughs> years right in my mind. So it wasn't you like- were a, You were a, a high functioning I had a adult. contrast. I had a contrast to, to, to notice about myself. Yeah, versus a, like, a young person Yes. They, they like a lot of this severe mental illness starts in the late teens, early 20s, yes. and you're still don't actually really figure out who you are yet. Right. And I already had a, a full life for the most part. I mean, at that point, I had been married 19 years. So, you know, it's I had a lot going on that. And for me to one day be able to handle it and the next day not was a little clear. You know, it was pretty crystal clear, like something's not the same. And I could hear the way I was talking, which sounded silly. I was a silly little girl talking. And um, in fact, my a few months down the line, my husband and I would go out on a date just to get to know each other again, because obviously I was really different. And one time I'm in the truck and I start swinging my legs like this. And um, he goes, how you doing? I said, I want to go play. <laughs> and I did not sound like myself. And he goes, okay, so we have the 12 year old back. All right. Where does she want to play tonight? And, and we went and played at this place. That's kind of like Chuck E. Cheese. Literally, that's what we did that night because that's who I was that night. And and my physical demeanor and my voice sounded different. That is really saying something for your former husband to have yes. been able to pivot on a dime and service your needs because you weren't able to rise to the occasion of whatever you had started out the evening planning to do. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the things that's so important for supporters, people who are supporting people with severe mental illness is to accept reality in the moment because maybe one day they can do something, but it doesn't mean the next day they can't. 
And right. yes, they were, they are still a really intelligent person and yet they can't make good judgment decisions just because they're smart. There's all these different, because people have these expectations that, well, you know, you did that yesterday. What's wrong with you today? Well, today right. is different than yesterday. And this morning is different than, you know, last night or it's just. And as a person with mental illness, sometimes you get afraid to try because if you try and succeed, then that's expected of you every day. Interesting. And, and you're, you, there's no, you feel uncertain and, and scientifically there's no certainty that you, because you did it one day, you'll be able to do it for the next three. So you, one of the things that I really experienced was, okay, how much, how much do I try? Because if I try too hard and I make it through that day and I'm terrified the next day, how do I explain that to anyone? It can feel like more of a failure because then then it's like, well, I could do it and now I can't. And so now I'm even worse than without finding out that I could do it. There's a there's a, a book, I believe, called Flowers for Algonon, if I'm saying that correctly. And it's about someone, a slow man who gets a medication. And the rats get the medication and he becomes not slow and he becomes intelligent and aware of his surroundings and able to function and then he sees the rats getting dumber and he knows that's going to happen to him mm. and um that is more painful in my mind than losing it in the first place having the hope of being restored and then having that snatched from you is scarier than having it snatched from you from the beginning, in my mind. Well, because that's where choice is. You can either okay, you you didn't you didn't have the choice in in losing it in the first place, but you right. have a choice over how ho hopeful you're going to be. Yes, yes. So that that is a little locus of control. Yes, and and it's. Um... And then as you get better, people around you think you're going to be the same person. You're going to go back to being the same person. And I am nothing. I'm a, I reckon I am. Um, I resonate with the person I was. I, in, at my soul level, I, I am the same person, but how I manifest my personality is completely different. Um, I never, ever did artwork or thought I could do artwork or anything like that. And my therapist had me do a lot of um, creative exercises. And I started sculpting out of trash randomly just, and it became a whole nother side of me. Mm -hmm. And I would have never, I don't think I ever gave myself the time to sit with myself long enough or to sit with materials long enough or to sit with the universe long enough to be free to see what comes up because I graduated high school in 1990. I got married in 1991. I had my daughter in 1992, my son in 1996. Then we bought a house, then this, then that, you know, there was, 
I basically graduated high school and then hit the ground running as fast as I could to do all the adult things. And I think my soul really just needed to go, screw you. You didn't give us the time you needed and we're going to take it. Hmm. And, and it happened. So I had to, (laughs) I had to stop and breathe. And, and I am so, so, so grateful for that now. It was scary as hell while it was happening. And also, I, I would like to talk a little bit about medications, if you don't mind, about okay. my experience. Yeah. Um, it took about a year and a half to two years for, for my psychiatrist and I to find a combination, a cocktail, as I call it, that worked for me. Because, and here's the thing that I, anyone who hears this and then knows someone with mental illness or becomes ill themselves, I, this is so important. The smallest change in, in milligrams or micrograms and, and the smallest change in, okay, I take these two medications, now we're just going to add this one, changes everything dramatically. And if you're not communicating and being a partner with your medical team, they can't, they can't benefit from what you're experiencing. It's, it's an only... iterative process where you, yes. you, you just, you keep testing and making little changes until you get Absolutely. it right. And that there is, that's one of the like huge things with mental illness is that there is no one answer fits all at all. No. And you everybody's know? chemical makeup is different. And even you can have the same symptoms, but Yes. One medication works on one person and not on another. And it's just, it's, yeah. it's, it, it is a matter of trial and error. Very much so it is. And sometimes that trial and error can be exhausting and infuriating, but it's worth it to keep going. In my opinion, in my experience, because um, I've been on the same cocktail you know, in air quotes, um, for probably five or six years now. The only thing that changed was I, I doubled one of them, um, when I got sober because I was having severe night terrors and, um, I, all the therapy wasn't getting rid of them. So the psychiatrist said, why don't we help you not have them or not remember them for now until you feel better, you know? So that, that was the only change that was made when I went into the hospital for rehab. Um, other than that, I've been very stable on it. And, um, I take it very seriously, my medications and also my peace of mind. I didn't know what the word peace meant inside, inside my body. Like I had no experience of that prior to, finding the right medications and the right lifestyle after I became mentally ill. So my mental illness really requires that I live a lifestyle and I have a mentality that keeps me um, peaceful. And for that, I'm grateful. I don't enjoy having to deal with the mental illness, but I'm really grateful that that I'm, I'm literally, I cannot survive without being peaceful in my life. Mm -hmm. 
these are these are things that we take for granted that we can live chaotic overly stressed lives yes and and it's not a healthy lifestyle and and when you know push comes to shove then sometimes we we find ways to actually do what we we could have and would have been better all along but it yes we it just it's people don't just change just and and prevention is so not on people's minds right um that a lot of times it just takes making it you know having something big happen before we actually do what would have been better all along which is i agree reduce stress find a way to be peaceful you know live have you know relationships that you know if they don't work then face the fact yes. they don't work if they're not you know going to get better all of these things that we we put off and we don't have to live under the amount of stress and disharmony that we that yes. we do that we put up with i call it settling and and in my That's book, I yeah, I in my book I talk about so you're you you're in this forced identity transition because there's some big catalyst that changed your life, and you're trying to figure out who you're becoming and and then become that person, and so might as well while you're doing that, let's really examine everything. Let's do it holistically, and right. take the time to get a, a much better life than maybe you had to begin with and it's not going to overlook the losses that, yeah. that are you know could still always be painful but we can there's always room for improvement in lifestyle choices i i agree with that and i really was surprised at how much i loved being creative like i was like well who is this person that's coming up you know and and i I have enjoyed that so much. I paint occasionally. Uh, I've been writing poetry. I mean, there's so much that I do that I just love. And one of the things that comes up for me sometimes is like, okay, so I helped my daughter with her calculus homework, but I couldn't even help my son with his algebra homework. And I felt like, who am I if I can't do that? So I really... And I had moments like that throughout the the time that I I was recovering and getting back on meds. And I still have moments like that. Like my my aunt the other day, she said to me, can you help me with this? You're so good with numbers. And I said, well, I was. I'm really not that great at it anymore. And some of my numbers have come back to me, some of it. But but it doesn't drive me and I don't love it so much like I used to. I'm glad to have the capability back to function in that manner, but it's, it's not my, I used to think it was my, my best asset. It is not my, I have found my best asset and my best asset is empathy. And, and I find solutions to life's problems, not necessarily to math which is interesting because it's like the process I used to do with math, I now use in life. And, um, and I'm enjoying that so much more and it feeds me. And I, 
I've done a lot of really fun things that were also very soul filling and and serve of service to others since my breakdown. And I I love that. I was also afraid that I wouldn't be the fun aunt anymore because I was I I'm the youngest one and I'm I was a lot of fun. I was up for anything all the time. And what I've found is the mental illness that that now creates a scenario where I really have to be careful about getting too high or too low. So I try very hard to stay um, in an equilibrium actually opens me up for a, a broader bandwidth to be fun. I'm able to do a lot more than I thought I could. I can handle a lot more people at the same time. There's so much more that I'm able to experience because I'm not wasting my bandwidth going so high and so low. And, and that's been really fun to discover as well. So what I've heard from a few people or a few, I don't know, many years ago, I learned something about bipolar and that one of the reasons people don't like to take the medication is that they don't get those highs and right. that life is boring, but you're saying something totally different. How is that? Well, I had to live past the disappointment of not being able to get that high when I wanted. Oh. So, so once I, 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 what I would do is I would think, okay, if I, if I want this high, those highs that I'm used to, I have to be okay with the lows too. Oh, and then I have you're to like... be okay with what it costs me. And, and I'm not ready to say that that's worth it. So I'm going to keep going on this path and see how I do. And what I found was that life was bigger on the other side of that. Wow. And, and you have, I'm sensing that you have incredible insight and that's another word in mental illness is not having insight and having insight. You're able to see, you're able to think about consequences of make of your choices. Yes. And, and what, that's one of the big tragedies. That's like one of the main tragedies of a severe mental illness is the lack of insight and not being able to have that logical thinking to then make more better Choices decisions. Or, or, yeah. or just to be patient, you know, that sort of thing. And I have to say, I really, I credit that completely to dealing with my sister with schizophrenia. Uh, she lived in the house I grew up in as a schizophrenic not on medication for the majority of my life. And so describe what that is for people, because that's just well, a word for people that haven't right. really. She, she hears voices that tell her things like she used to tell me. So I was five when she had a breakdown and, and I was, she was 14 when I was born. Well, a common theme of 14 year olds is you're going from childhood to teenage years. So usually you don't get in trouble that much before 14 and you tend to sometimes get in trouble after 14 years. Well, in my sister's head, I was the catalyst because I was born when I was, when she was 14. So in her mind, in her schizophrenic mind, I caused her issues. And she, this was crazy 
to grow up hearing this, but I grew up hearing you, you send me evil messages. You want me to fail. The devil speaks to me through you. Crazy things. Mm. And I don't know how I, I'm not really sure how I came out of that with, without, well, I'm going to say how I came out of that with my, with my sanity, but you know, I guess in the end, I really didn't come out of that with my sanity because I ended up having the breakdown too. But, but I, you, I you came out as a, as a totally functioning young adult. Yes. But I was confronted with the disease, with the, the disorder all the time because I lived with it. And that's and so, incredibly stressful for family members. And I think that's what, why yes. you, you were, had some tears earlier on thinking, you know, sort of remembering and reliving, but from the perspective of your family when it happened. Absolutely. Anytime I would give my sister a present, she'd turn around, go to her room and start bawling. That, that was what would happen when I would try and show her love. Hmm. So I, I was very aware of how off her statements were. So I think that helped me observe myself a little bit. You had, you, you sort of had a, a warning. Yes. Because severe mental illness is so off the charts odd that yes. you don't have anything, you know, you're completely caught off guard, but in your case, you weren't completely caught off guard. You knew right. just how off the charts it could be. And so then you were able to more recognize it in yourself, it sounds like. I think that's how it happened. I really do. I I, I really feel like my sister experiencing it before me was, was a gift to me on how I managed my own illness. So we're going to run out of time, but so how did you manage it and come out of it and become this new person that you were just describing? Well, I got put on disability, so I was given the time to figure it out. Mm -hmm. My ex-husband was very, he was my husband at the time. He was very patient during my very difficult period where I was really off kilter. It was a little different when I became quote unquote sane again and myself again things kind of changed, but, but in the moments that I really needed to have the time to be patient with myself, he was wonderful. And I, I just took baby steps. I really just took baby steps. And at one point my psychiatrist said I was going to go back to work and I couldn't even speak. Like I, I literally, I was like, like this. And I, I almost started throwing up. And my you weren't said, at all ready. Oh, I was so scared. And, 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 he and said, why, did, why did the psychiatrist think you were ready? I don't know. To tell you the truth, I wasn't even fully aware enough to know why he thought that. Wow. But my husband said, what's going on? And I said, yeah. and he goes, hand me that paperwork. And I handed him the paperwork that was in my hand. And he goes, and he put me in the backseat of the truck. And then went back up two flights of stairs. I don't know what he said to the psychiatrist. He said him straight. My husband is, 
My husband is six foot seven. He's a really big guy. So I'm sure he was a little daunting looking at this little skinny psychiatrist. And he came back and he goes, don't worry, you're not going back to work. I handled it. And I went, good for him. Okay. <laughs> you know, I was like, all right. And, and he just was my advocate in a big way. And um, I'm very grateful. I am too. I'm, I'm just, I'm listening to this story and I don't know what happened later, but boy, oh boy, did he do the right things that, you know, the amount of support you got from him and understanding yes. and advocacy because you couldn't do it for yourself. Right. And if you hadn't had that, you actually probably wouldn't be here talking to me today the way we are. I agree. And he reached out for help from my mom and dad when he needed it. You know, he really, he, he took all the steps that were necessary to protect me. Wow. Yeah. Let's send him a little, a little love. Good. Yeah. Good energy. Thank you. What was, what's his name? Josh. Josh, thank you, Josh, for taking care of Marie. Thank you very much, Josh. I, I, I don't even know how to begin to describe how he handled that. Well, you've already given a huge number of descriptions of ways that he's done it <laughs> that is just phenomenal. Because there's so many people that just go into denial. And they're yes. like, you know, just snap out of it. You can do this. Right. And, you know, you're just depressed or something and you're going to get over this. There, there's there's so many people who don't look at reality in the face and then yes. deal with it. And, and, and people can get much, much worse very fast when others are pretending that things aren't as bad as they are. Yeah, I think I would have spiraled way further into my own neuroses and and my own dysfunction just to protect myself if I hadn't had such a safe space right we're, we're running out of time but I just wanted just sort of to support what your husband and you had going on this um cousin of mine had this friend who had a twin and the twin came down with schizophrenia I don't know at what age but they were adults and so the the functional one had a business and so he had his brother working there and he gave him accommodations okay oh. and so the brother could actually show up and and be part of doing something outside of the home instead of just being yes you know be seen be valued have well, some honor to his own being so then guess what happened what the brother with mental illness who still had mental illness but he was managing very well because he was having these accommodations other people in the company like well why does he get this special treatment he's fine look at him uh -huh. and the and so the owner of the brother who was the owner listened to these people he was swayed by them and he changed his brother's accommodations and his brother committed suicide. Yes, that does and not surprise me. 
And that is what people need to understand about severe mental illness is that when you give the accommodations that help the person be able to function at whatever level they can, it doesn't really matter what you think about it. It matters right. what, like that psychiatrist obviously was not knowing you at all to be was not on point, just like completely out of it. And yes. yes, you could have ended up dead. Yes. I I I completely agree with you. I, I have one more thing to say. I know we're running out of time, but recently, like probably two or three years ago, I brought my mom my diagnosis to my mom and I had her read what the Mayo Clinic said about my diagnosis. And as soon as she was done, she immediately turned to me and she said, Well, that's not you. You clearly don't have this. And I said, mom, spend five minutes in my brain. Just because I present well does not mean it's not taking me 30 steps beyond what a normal brain will be doing to get to that point to present well. You have no yes. idea what goes through my head and what I have to ignore that my brain's telling me because I know it's not true. And I have to discern all that before I can function correctly. Right. How a person presents is not necessarily what's going on inside. Yeah. And, and a lot of, a lot of, you know, people with severe mental illness, I knew this guy, he, he was in this, um, he'd, he'd get, he'd get, he had schizophrenia and he would get in fights because he would think people behind him were oh. like, Yes. conspiring against him so then he'd get arrested so then he'd go to jail and then he'd get out of jail and then he'd like you know end up in the psych ward and then he'd get yes. out of the psych ward and then he'd like be back in jail it was just like a revolving door thing but the thing is is that every time he went to court to get out of the psych ward he could present so well that they thought that he didn't have a problem because in his mind, his life depended on him presenting well because everyone was conspiring against him in his mind. So it makes perfect sense that he would play the game to get out from under the control of the people who are conspiring against him. Right. So it's just, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to talk about your experience here today, Marie, and share this, especially that last part about your mom. Even people who know mom, us yeah. don't really know us, you know? Like even our therapists, they only know what we- What we show them. What we show them. And then they make yeah. up in their minds, in their, you know, and we all do this. We, we yes. see a person and then we make up other stories in our mind to put together all the pieces that we want to have put together. But all those other pieces may or may not have anything to do with reality. And Absolutely. so that's, that's just why it's so important to take people at face value when they say they can't do something or, you know, I'm just not up to it today. It, you know, just give a little bit of grace to people to, that they can actually speak for themselves and and what you're seeing is not the whole picture right yeah 
thank you for allowing me to tell my story. It's been a while since I've shared that one and it was very relieving. It felt good to share and I appreciate you giving me an audience to hear it. Well, I appreciate you being willing to share it. How was it relieving to you? What did you get out of it? Well, if all that came up for me while I was sharing the words, well, it's definitely in my body. So I feel like any time I can tap, I tap into an emotional experience I've had and I put it to words, that takes it out of my body where it's been stored and it allows it to be released. And, and I, I think that's imperative for our health. And I really appreciate having the space to do that. Yeah, I just got chills all over because you know how many people won't talk about things because they don't want to feel the feelings. Yeah. And then they, then those feelings are just stuck in there and things are happening with those feelings in there. And you're just telling us that, even though, of course, it's not fun to cry, that in fact, it it's sometimes what's needed to actually go yeah. in and feel what's still in there. And it's kind of like emotional surgery or emotional, you know, an emotional workout. I feel like there's emotions stored in my body for all the things I've been through that I couldn't process at the time. Right. And when I tap into those emotions and I give them I give them a voice, then they no longer take a hold of my body and they decide that they're safe to, to leave and be processed. Wow, that is so powerful. Well, let's before we finish, I want the before, I want the before, during, and after description of Marie before I know you've kind of gone over this but just sort of right. to sum it all up will you give that to us yes as far as like your um, identity before the breakdown I thought I was invincible in a lot of ways I believed I could force or will my way through anything um, and you were doing a pretty good job at it I was and I I, I didn't see the value in the nuances of time and space and allowing me to just breathe for a moment and, and consider myself. I didn't see the value of that. And so I didn't do it in the middle of the breakdown and the whole, my entire identity with my work and everything and who I am as a woman, um, leaving that was very very scary it was it was also joyful at times because I kind of reverted to a child so I was like playing and doing a lot of things that children do so in those moments when I wasn't considering the the adult world I was very happy and pure joy and then when I noticed the the distance between who I was in those moments and and what I used to be, it, I was sad and confused. And then I started to really enjoy learning myself again. So, so it, it became less confusion and more excitement about what might come out of this. Afterwards, I would say I am much more of a congruent person. My, my soul, my mind, my heart, 
my emotions are are more in align with another with all of it they're all together now it's not disjointed where i'm doing what i have to do to get through and i understand the beauty of giving myself time and also giving myself advocating for myself and and really caring for myself wow now i know we're going over time but you didn't really say that much how you got out of it can you, <laughs> can you i will tell you it was i did my very best not to put a lot of expectations on myself and i was very lucky that my family did not put many expectations on myself. So it really was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, but I have to tell you this huge thing about it. My dog <laughs> who I've had for 12 and a half years, she came to, she was born the week before my breakdown. Mm -hmm. And my kids watched her be born. And then she became mine about six to eight weeks into my breakdown. And I will tell you that she absolutely got me out of my room. She got me outside myself. There was a lot of healthy interaction that because I loved her, I wanted to do it. I will say I played a lot and, and that is huge. My parents would play Wii with me. My kids, you know, the Wii where you use your body to play tennis, you know, that video game. I loved that. And, and they would play with me. They would take me to the movies. So I, I was able to get up and out of my hiding without being expected to be more than I could be. That was huge. That I, I don't, that really was what it was. And I just took every baby step I could. Okay. So you had support and understanding and, and you yes. also ended up getting on some medications that helped. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That, that, that's a big one. The medications allowed me to feel what it was like without the depression and the anxiety and, and the hallucinations and that sort of thing. Now, Occasionally when I see something I, I know logically is, is not supposed to be there, I turn my head away from it and then I look back again. And usually if it's a hallucination, it's gone when I turn back and look because I bring awareness to it mm -hmm. and, I, and I, I look at it head on. I don't hide from it or get scared by it. Mm -hmm. I used to get scared by it, but I, I decided that's not healthy. And that I need to know that that's going to happen on occasion and not let it throw me off. So. Wow. Yeah, your level of insight and awareness, I guess they're the same thing. That too is part of your recovery. Well, what, um, two things. What takeaways do you have for the audience? And also how can people follow you or find you and what are you doing in the you know in the current day <laughs> in the current day who are you right now marie okay i will say my takeaway is 
there's always help, even if it's not the first place you look. Yeah. Keep looking. Even if it's not the fifth place you look. Keep looking. Keep looking. Keep, keep looking and, and keep showing up where you can, when you can. And, and pray about the rest. That's what I would say. And what I'm doing today is I have a podcast called My Side of the Street that I started last June. Wow. Um, and it's about me and my journey of healing and what I've found that helps um, different silly situations I've been in that where I was, you know, totally screwed up on something or whatever, and then figured out what mattered. And then I also opened up a women's sober living home in Southern California oh, in December. Oh, man. Whoa. Are those needed? <laughs> and I, um, my plan is to speak uh, on a national level about recovery and mental illness. And I plan on opening a minimum of 12 sober living homes for men and women across the nation so that each market my home is in, it, it elevates the market. So no crappy, unintegral places can exist in its space. You're raising the standard. Yeah, that's my goal. Oh man, talk about a mission. Wow. And how can people follow you and find you online, connect with you? Well, I shared it with you so you can put it in the show notes. My Side of the Street with Marie Lynn is on Facebook. It's also on every, you know, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. It's, it's on all of those so you can find it. And then uh, 620 is on Facebook also. It's S-I-X-2-0 because my sober living, my sober date is June 20th of 2019. So I named my company after that. So um, you can, and I also gave you the email and the phone number. So that'll be in the show notes also. If you know of anyone who needs uh, a sober home who's female, which is all we have right now, um, let me know. I answer a lot of questions for people who aren't even a match to my, our house. I, I answer a lot of questions about sobriety, recovery, and um, how you can best help your loved ones also. So talk about coming full circle. Yeah. Oh, man. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Marie. Thank you for having me, Julie. And this has been Julie Brown. On Bold Becoming. Hey there. The value that you got from this today, take it into your heart. Add value to it in your own life by putting it into practice and growing it to be part of your life, your daily habits, the takeaways that you got from this. Words and thoughts only take us so far. It's implementing on those words and thoughts that will change your life. Ideas are just ideas. Taking action on ideas is where growth happens and freedom emerges from growth. Freedom from our past invisible binding. We're here to grow and release ourselves from our past constraints. 
With awareness, intention, and through taking action on new choices, we evolve. In this process, we exalt our pain and suffering into wisdom that empowers us. We all have the ability to transform and become that person we yearn to be. If today's episode added value to your life, please share it with others. And make sure to subscribe to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. And if you might, take a minute right now and leave a review so that others can find out about this podcast. If you'd like to contact me for one-on-one coaching or to get on the wait list for my Tough Stories workshop, send me an email and we'll be in touch. Be sure to check out our free Facebook group of Bold Becomers. The link's in the show notes.